Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Um, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Psalm 19. So aim towards the middle of your Bible, and uh, we're going to be on the 19th Psalm. And uh, as we're, before we actually read the passage of Scripture, I wanted to just kind of set up the, this morning's conversation for us a little bit. Um, I think uh, a lot of us feel this way at this point, uh, who believe in the name of Christ, is uh, we feel that sometimes Christianity is portrayed as a, a threat uh, to, in the culture around us. And uh, sometimes that makes Christians feel a little bit uneasy. But I want to kind of tell you that this is not really coming from new things. It feels new, but there's something that's been going on for a long time in the United States that really is shaping that. So I don't know if you can remember a decade ago or 20 years ago, uh, but Christianity wasn't portrayed as a threat. It was more portrayed as a harmless delusion, right? It's like, yeah, there's some kind of fringe people or Christians who do this. And then there, it was portrayed at one point really as, a, as, a, as helpful for societal glue. You know, it might not really be true, but it's really helpful for society, for people to have a transcendent idea of rules and laws and things. And so that was part of what was going on. But if you begin to trace it back, you begin to realize that underneath culturally, not a lot has really changed. Christianity has kind of been marginalized for a long time culturally particularly in the West. And some of this goes back to a man by the name of Immanuel Kant, who was in the 18th century. Uh, and, in, and, and he really divided the world into what we would say is fact and faith. So he talked about these two ideas. He called them the phenomenal realm and the noumenal realm. The phenomenal realm was the word of, world of concrete things things you could touch and handle and see. It's a world of science and investigation. And on the other side was what he called the noumenal realm. And the noumenal realm was the realm of ideas and things that were not tangible. World, things like justice or things like the spiritual realm or God or the afterlife. So he divided the world up this way and that really has settled into the way that we think as Western people. And so we have this kind of division in our mind between what's real and then what is faith or maybe even pretend over here. Things we can't justify at all. They, they might be real. We hope they're real, but maybe they're probably not real after all. And so what we're feeling in our culture is a lot of these things are coming to our head with a lot of other societal factors right now of saying, hey, uh, there's a big division that's here. Now, here's the problem with what Kant originally said. Now, Kant, what Kant said to us and what we've embraced as a culture was a, con was a concept there's nothing in the material world that we, or the world that we experience would say that there's this hard and easy division this way between those things. There just isn't. In fact, that idea of, you know, that there's a noumenal and phenomenal realm which we've embraced, fact, fiction, or fact and faith, that is a concept that is, we impose on the world around us. But the world might not really be that way at all. It's just the way that we think about it today after, after Kant and other thinkers. But Kant made a really a fatal assumption, and the assumption was that, uh, that God would be known the exact same way as everything else. Uh, but we know that's not true, that, that God would be known the same way that we would know what a tomato is. That's not true, because we know that 
our knowledge of things is different. So our knowledge of a person is very different than our knowledge of a, of a fungus, something that's different, right? You may use some of the same, you use your brain for that, but it's a different way of knowing something. And why would we assume that knowing God must be exactly the same as knowing the things that he created, right? People are looking for God in creation, and people ask the question, where's God? I don't see him in the world around us. That's not a new question. So in Psalm 115, which we're not looking at this morning, but you can look at it later, in Psalm 115, uh, people in that day and age were asking God's people, where is your God? Because they wanted to, you know, something hard and fast, a statue sitting in some sort of a temple. And they said, uh, our God is in heaven. He doesn't dwell in temples. He's not built like idols. He's none of those things. He does whatever he pleases. He's not bound in the same way that things here are bound and the way that people are bound. So knowing a person is, is different. Uh, why would we assume that knowing God is like knowing all of the other things that he created that when he transcends all of them. He's not like them. He built them, but he's not like them. So that was an assumption that Kant made, was embraced at the time, that you know, God would be known the same way that we would know what a tomato is. But it does bring up an important question, right? We're spending our time this summer talking about communing with God, knowing God, having a personal relationship with God. And it kind of begs the question is, can we know God? And how would we know God? That's a fair question to ask, right? And this passage, actually in Psalm 19, was written thousands of years ago, but uh, it tells us how we know God. So if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand as we read Psalm 19. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The words of our rock remain forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we look at him now. We are so grateful, Holy Spirit, 
that you penned those words through David so long ago, that you led him to write this, uh, this expression of what it means to know you and how we know you. So we pray that now, hundreds of years later, that we opening this up and in our day and age, that we would have the same response to your word that David did, that we would have the same response to you revealing yourself to people, and that we would worship. Would you bless us? We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so how, how would we know? How, well, God, this passage is telling us that God himself has made himself known. So the Bible says there are two ways. This passage is saying there are two ways that God is revealing himself. Two main ways. Commonly referred to as general revelation and special revelation. And we're going to see how that passage, the passage breaks that down in a second. But really quickly, what do we mean by revelation? Revelation simply means to take the cover off to reveal something. You, you show what's inside. So, ta-da, here it is. So it's very popular right now for people to do a gender reveal for their, you know, their baby that's been born or it's on the way when they look at the ultrasound. And so that way you know what the sex of the baby is, male or female. And it's the same when we're looking at this, is, is God is revealing himself and saying, here I am. This is what I'm like. This is who I am. And it's revealing not just who he is, but for some, in some ways, particularly general revelation, he's revealing to us that he is, that he exists. So let's take a look at general revelation real quick. General revelation is really God's revelation of himself in nature. So in verse 1, we read this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the, the sky above declares, it proclaims, it's not just there by chance, it's there with a purpose to announce, to reveal God, so that everyone knows it. So a general revelation is, general, re, general revelation means that God has made his existence known through the natural world. And as you look through the Bible, it's, it's not just in the stars and the moon and the sun, but it's in rain that's sent to water the earth and God is revealing his kindness. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says that through the things that are made, God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen from what has been made. Uh, what has been made. And he's saying here that he's done it in ways that everyone can hear and understand. So in verse 2, he says, day to day. Verse 4, he says, all the earth. And in verse 3, it says that they do not have a voice, but they speak to people of every language all over the place. So everyone, everywhere, all the time, experiences the general revelation of God. He's making himself known all the time. So creation is evidence that there's a God, and, and people know it. Now, for many people, uh, that there is something rather than nothing is a big argument for them for the existence of God, right? Uh, Y'all know that great theologian, uh, Maria von Trapp uh, from uh, Sound of Music? So she's dancing with the colonel, and she has this line. She says, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could, right? She's right. Nothing comes from nothing. So the fact that there is something for many people leads them to say there has to be a God. Otherwise, there would still be nothing, and there would be nothing to call it nothing. There would be no thing or no one that would exist. But people know this. So Andrew Wilson, who 
wrote a book called Incomparable, in which he's talking about the different qualities and, and attributes of God. He said this. He said, everybody knows, every language known to me, now he's a linguist, so he studies a lot of language, languages. He says, every language known to me has a word for God. Some languages don't have any tenses or a word for have or a word for thee, but they all have a word for God. They may not be talking about the same God or the true God, but they all have the same word. Somewhere in the mindset of everyone in the world is the idea of God. It's there. We see it. It's around us all the time. I remember a story I heard not too, too long ago about a, a Chinese, a, a, she was a Chinese student living in the United States, and she went to a Christian university, or went to a, just a university. She got involved with a Christian group. First meeting, hearing about Jesus, she believed in Jesus. And they, were, they thought that was really quick. You know, it didn't take months for her to kind of wrestle with these ideas. And they asked her, you know, why, was your, why did you believe tonight of all nights? She's like, you heard for the first time you believed. That was very quick. And she said, well, growing up in China, we were a communist country. And in all of my classes growing up, they said, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. We heard these things on the radio. I went outside into a field one night and looked up at the stars and said, there has to be something. There is somebody. There is something out there. I just didn't know who he was until you told me who he was. So the heavens declare the glory of God. In this way, the psalmist is saying that we know that there's a God from what has been made. And there's a measure of, uh, for us who believe and not only reveals that there is a God, but for us who believe, there's a measure of communion that's there with God through the creation. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where's the place that you go that you have a sense God is here and his truth, his beauty, his glory? For me, it's a, a sunrises at the beach. For me, it's sunsets at the beach. Uh, for me, it was driving home on Monday night, uh, and uh, we were, you know, the most big thunderstorm that was in the area? And so we, we rounded, I think, uh, the road right before 462 or whatever this is. And so there weren't a lot of trees and things. And there was this one bolt of lightning that forked out, not just, you know, like a little bit, it completely spread out all over the horizon. It was gorgeous and beautiful. And I thought, this is God's fireworks. This is beautiful. This is fantastic. And it drew me to worship him. There was a communion that was taking place in the car because of what I had seen. So now it reveals that there's a God uh, the creation does, but sometimes it's ge that's just generic, and we might use the word God, but w what is God like, and how would we know? So I drive around in uh, Florida, like the rest of you, and there are a variety of uh, license plates, and I was struck the other day by seeing a license plate that had the words, in God we trust on it, and I was thinking, that's an interesting phrase to use in the United States right now, because there are so many different opinions about what, who God is and what God must be like, so how would we know? And that's where the second part of the psalm tells us what God is like. And so the first six verses tell us about God in cre revealing himself in creation. Verse 7 is beginning to talk about what we would call God's special revelation, where God is revealing to us his character and his love. He is a self-revealing divine person who enters into a relationship with us. So special revelation, in special revelation, God tells us of his righteous character, of his love, his faithfulness to his people. He tells us what he's done for us, how he's changed our destiny, destiny for good, and made a way for us to be saved. Now, most often when we talk about God's special revelation, we are talking about the Bible. And we're going to come to something else that's God's special revelation in just a little bit. 
But by and large, it's really referring to the Bible. And in fact, as you read through these verses uh, 7 through 9, he uses a variety of words that sound like he's talking about different things at first, but he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about his word, the Bible. So when he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, he's saying these are all words that describe the contents and what the Bible is communicating to us about God. And one thing that's really important about this is in verse 7, there's a shift in the text. So in verse 1, where he said, the, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, God in Scripture can be more of a generic term for the deity. Sometimes it refers to the one true God, but sometimes it refers to uh, other deities. But here he does something in verse 7 that is really important, is when he starts talking about God revealing himself in his word, he shifts the term from God, the more generic term, to the specific term, which we translate as the Lord. But sometimes, uh, you know, some people will try to get back to the original Hebrew and Jehovah is one, or sometimes Yahweh, it's the same thing. Uh, but because we would butcher the Hebrew if we tried to speak it, we just translated it as the Lord, and there are some other <laughs> reasons for that having to do with translations years ago uh, where we translate it as the Lord, but it's actually a Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, I am, I am who I am. So what God is doing is he's revealing himself and he's saying he's not, he's not left us to invent or to guess because he's revealed us and told us who he is and what he is like. And this is why the Bible is indispensable for us having a personal relationship with God and communing with God. It is a record of God's self-revelation. God's communication to us leads us to communion with him. And it's extremely important. So we need to have a, uh, the Bible for a personal relationship with God. And apart from it, you don't, we don't really know him. When, in his word, we see him clearly. We meet him. He speaks to us. We hear him. Uh, and yet, the problem comes for people where we, we say, yeah, but what, the Bible was written by people long ago. How do we know? How do we know? That's a big question for a lot of people. I was watching a clip the other day online, and it was two people in the United States talking about who God was. And uh, just to let you, you know, th what was going on is they were debating particular aspects of cultural stuff in the United States. And one was using a certain set of pronouns to refer to God. And you could tell from the face of the other one that he had a real problem with that uh, based on what he was looking at in Scripture. Um, but these are two different people with two very different takes on God. But the Bible says something specific about God. How do we know that the Bible got it right? How do you know? Well, the Bible itself gives us a system for knowing. Uh, people never decided for themselves that they were going to speak for God. You know, like somebody woke up one morning and said, you know what, today I'm going to start speaking for God. Won't that be good? I can write my own book, and then other people have to do what I tell them to do. That's not how it worked. You see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it into the New Testament. Is God specifically called people. He showed up to them and said, you're the guy. You're the person. And then God uh, authenticated what they were doing. He gave them credentials. And those credentials are something that we call miracles. He gave them supernatural powers to heal and do things that nobody else could do to authenticate that there's a supernatural power that is behind what I'm doing, and it's God. Got that? 
So you see this with Moses and the, the, the miracles, the signs that were done with Egypt. You see this in the miracles of Jesus. Is they, kept, they kept saying, show us a sign. And he's like, I raised the dead. I'm multiplying loaves and fishes. What, do you, what are you looking for specifically? And uh, what they were really looking for is some way of saying, you're not really who you say you are. But Jesus was performing all the signs. But this goes on throughout the entire Bible. That's why there are so many miracles that are talked about in Scripture. So we read this in Hebrews chapter 2, 3, and 4. It was declared that the, sal the salvation of Jesus was first declared by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. That's the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit distributed according to his will. So God called he confirmed through miracles. He inspired these people to write down on Scripture, write down exactly what he wanted them to write down. And then over time, it's been transmitted, copied, and delivered to us. Uh, we don't have the originals. Uh, a lot of people get, get really upset, like, we don't have the originals. Do you know why we don't have the, the originals? This is my guess. I don't think God wanted us to have the originals. Do you know why? Because we would put them in a temple and we would worship pieces of paper. Right? So he didn't want us to have those. And by the way, they were written on paper. <laughs> the paper's probably gone somewhere. Um, so paper just didn't last. So what we're looking at is communication from God leads to communion with God. So special revelation, um, God revealed himself. Now here's, here's an, something we need to talk about for a second. In our culture, it's very common to say, where's God in the middle of this? Why doesn't God just come and talk to me as a person, right? Why doesn't he just speak to me directly? Um, like there's somehow a flaw in the way that God created things. But the reason God is not speaking to us individually the way that he has spoken to specific people or the way that he spoke to Adam at first is because, not because there's a flaw in creation, but because of something else. And here's what the something else is, estrangement. Right. I don't know Ron. I don't know Ron DeSantis. I don't know. I don't know him. I've never met him. I see him on the news. Those kind of things. I, I see. That there's, there's probably no way I'll ever meet him. But I don't have a relationship with him, uh, and so I never talk to him face to face. Right? I have a relative that I never met. He's passed away now. I never met him because at some point he did something, and there was estrangement in our family. So, because of his behavior and the things that he would do. There was estrangement, and the family couldn't have anything to do with them because it was harmful, okay? That's more along the lines of what we're dealing with in Scripture. Is in Genesis chapter 3, God not talking to us right now is not, has nothing to do with the way he built the world, world to just kind of be far off. He came into the garden with Adam and Eve. He had a relationship. He spoke with them face to face, right, in a, in a way that was unique. But after Genesis 3 and sin entered the world, there's estrangement and there's brokenness in that relationship. So our hope is that someday, one day, we will see him face to face and we will hear his voice audibly the way that we hear it by faith now. But today, we don't yet have that. But we have God's word revealing himself to us. This is what he's given to us. Now, it's not enough to have a relationship with God simply to have the Bible, right? Because, let me walk you through this. We read in this passage in, in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
right? And so most of us uh, tend to read the Bible as if the Bible just told me something I'm supposed to be doing. The law of the Lord is perfect. Therefore, to be right with God, I need to be perfect. I need to keep that law perfectly to be made right with God. And that's how every religion seeks to respond to this estrangement between us and God. There's estrangement. I need to get my acting gear so that God uh, will, uh, I can have a relationship with God. I can be acceptable to God. Every religion. So years ago, we had a, um, Rebecca and I had a Jehovah's Witness couple come to our door. And uh, they wanted to share the Jehovah's Witness understanding of the gospel with us. And Jehovah's Witness is not a Christian denomination. It's a, it's a different religion. They have very different beliefs about God. They have very different beliefs about scripture, Holy Spirit, salvation. And so they were talking about how a person is saved. And this is what they said. They said, uh, a person is saved by reading the Bible. Oh, that's good. Um, memorizing the Bible and doing the Bible. And uh, I said, okay, so if you read the Bible, memorize the Bible, and do the Bible, then you're going to be saved. And they said, absolutely. I said, come here and let me show you some other passages of Scripture. So we talked about sin and brokenness and how there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And slowly, particularly the wife, I was watching her mind begin to swim because she was thinking, wait a second, everything I've ever been taught is it's what I do that makes me right with God and you're telling me there's nothing I can do that makes me right with God. It's only by faith. And we're like, yes. And so he hurried her out of the house very quickly. Um, because they were, what their understanding was, it's what you do that makes you right with God. It's what you do. And so, but I, I think this is a problem also for Christians because we still have that buried in us and our minds and hearts as well that God will accept me based on my performance. And we feel far from God because... We know, we're, if we're honest with ourselves at all, we know we're failing in our performance, right? So this week I was listening to a radio preacher for a little bit. Uh, actually, I'm, I was a radio preacher, something else. Um, and there was a guy who was talking about something his preacher at his church had said uh, to him in a, just in passing. He was talking about 1 Corinthians 13, which is that beautiful passage about love in Scripture. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not self-seeking. It's not rude. All, it's beautiful. And so what this pastor told this man is he said, if, uh, if you want to know what God wants, what changes you need to make in your life, then put your name instead of love in those verses. And that's probably where God wants to work on you. So I, I said, okay, okay, I'll try that. Stephen is patient. And it destroyed me immediately. <laughs> Stephen is patient. Stephen is kind. No, he's not. No, he's not. That's my kids. Stephen is not any of those things. And my wife is gone, so y'all just, they just know. They just know. And it just crushed me. And so we read this passage, and it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, but I'm not. And so instead of reviving me, it's a crushing burden upon me. I can't do this. And when I'm in that mindset, I don't feel close to God. I feel far from God. That breaks down the very thing we're talking about this, this summer, which is communion with God. And so it has to be looking to somebody else that, whose work holds me into the presence of God even when my hands can't hold on to it. So if you ever had a little kid in your life who is trying to do the monkey bars and you know that they can't do the monkey bars on their own. So functionally, you, you, know, you pick the child up and you're doing the monkey bars for the child. You hold them up and their hands are just barely like touching the monkey bars. It's like, would you please hold on tighter? 
Stephen is patient. Stephen's got, so they're holding on, and they're not really supporting their weight. So if you let go at any second, they're dropping to the ground, right? In the gospel of Jesus, what we see is you're not holding on to the monkey bars. He's holding on to you. And if you're obedient in any way, shape, or form, it's because he's holding you there, right? Because he loves you. Not because you deserve it or not because you were doing well. You just need a little help every once in a while. No, it's, it really is because he loves you. So most of us are really looking at the scriptures through the wrong lens. And a passage like this through the wrong lens is like, okay, what are all the things that God is telling me I'm supposed to be doing when that's not it? It's telling us all the things that Jesus has done to make us right with God. That's where it starts. So when you go to the law and you're reading this passage, you're like, the law of the Lord is perfect. You know, Stephen is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Stephen is sure. No, I'm not. The law of the Lord is perfect. In other words, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is sure. Jesus is right. Jesus is pure. He's those things and I'm not. And he's those things for me. He is, in the New Testament, called the Word of God made flesh. Meaning he embodies everything that's in the Word. The, the, word, the Bible is about him, but he embodies those things. If you want to understand the sacrificial system, what it was for, go to Jesus. The sacrificial system was set up to be fulfilled by Jesus. If you want to know what the law of God looks like in somebody's life, go to Jesus. If you want to know what the mercy of God looks like in somebody's life, go to Jesus. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. Is most of us will look at Jesus and say, yes, 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 I know he loves me. I know that he cares for me. I know that uh, he loves me. But Jesus also said this. If you've seen me, Jesus, you've seen the Father. And that one's hard for us because I talk to so many people who say, yeah, I know that Jesus loves me, but the Father, that's hard because I see him in Scripture as this kind of angry deity but when we look at Scripture, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when we look at the passage in 1 Corinthians where it says, love is patient, love is kind. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. But what Jesus says is we also see the Father. The Father is patient. The Father is kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. And so what that means is the Father loves us. And so for you to be able to go to the Scripture and actually see what it's saying and actually commune with God in the midst of it, you have to understand that God is exactly who the Bible says He is. He's a God of love. And so when we come to this, you know, any passage, that's where I start. I know who God is. He's a God of love. John Owen, who is this Puritan writer, he wrote this, and I wish I had to quit for those guys. That's my fault. So... Um, but John Owen wrote this. He said, Jesus says, the Father himself loves you. Above all things, the Father loves you. Be fully assured in your hearts that the Father loves you. Have fellowship with the Father and his love. Have no fears or doubts about his love for you. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Isn't that awesome? So when we're looking at this passage and saying, okay, the law of the Lord is perfect, well, it's, it's not telling us what we need to do. It's telling us, who, first and foremost, who God is, who Jesus is for us, 
And it's in that power, in that reality, that we begin to bring this into our own lives as well. Is that this law, the law of the Lord is perfect. It, it actually revives us. And this is why we, why we really need it. Is this, the psalmist is recognizing here that even though the law can't save us, only Jesus can. Jesus makes the Father's love and salvation known to us. The Bible tells us about Jesus, but it's Jesus who saves and Jesus who revealed. But in this passage, uh, it's telling us things about God's word that we need to depend on and then the blessing. So like in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Right? So the law of the Lord, that's God's word, it's perfect, reviving the soul. I'm saying, how in the world do, I, do we illustrate that and think about it? Now, by the way, a good exercise for you to do on a Sunday afternoon is to go through this little section and, and think through each of those pieces all the way down through verses 7 through 9. But uh, I'm, I'm a movie guy. I like movies. Um, there's one called Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell. Most of y'all are familiar with Elf. Um, it's a different movie. Um, but it's Will Ferrell, and he starts off, he's, uh, he's an accountant. He's leads a pretty boring life, and it starts off with uh, a narrator narrating his, his life. And you just have the sense that this is just a narrator. So he's brushing his teeth, and the narrator's saying he brushes his teeth, you know, like 52 times, each up and down, up and down, up and down. Then he washes, and he takes this many steps to work, and it's going through his day. And eventually, Will Ferrell's character says, who is saying that? He starts to hear the narrator speaking into his life. And he's, he's got the sense of what is going on? Am I going crazy? So he goes and sees people to get some help. And it ends up that there's somebody who is writing a book about him. And he's a character. He's the main character in the book. And he's hearing the person write the narration about his life. And it's this fascinating thing. He's trying to figure out this person. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with my life? This person has this power. What am I doing? Um, but in the meantime, as the narrator narrates things about his life, he sees things about himself that he never would have seen before. And he starts to make some changes. And he meets this woman. And he falls in love. And he starts appreciating aspects of his life. And then finally, he meets the person who's the narrator, uh, the person who's writing this book about him. And she is very well known for having all of her characters, her characters die a gruesome end. You're kind of like... You're, you're, you're like, now I don't need to see the movie. No, you, I don't know. You may want to. So a gruesome in, and she writes the story. Uh, she's, got it kind of, she's got it finished, and she puts it into his hand, and he knows. He goes home, and he reads it and pours over it, and then he comes back and gives her the story, knowing how his life is going to end, and he says, it's perfect. It's perfect. Because what he's watching is this transformation that is taking place in his life as a result of everything that is happening to him so that his end didn't have the sting that it would have. And for us as Christians, we see the story. We, may, you know, we, can't, we see the hindsight in our life. We don't see the future, but our story. God has a story that he's writing, that he's, he's written for us. And even though there's an end to it, what comes after that the Bible tells us about, takes the sting out of it. And all the hard things that we went through in life that we recognize, God, use this for my good. God, use this for my good. I wouldn't have known him except this really hard thing happened. We look at that and say, it was perfect. And as we go through the story as it's written in Scripture, 
It revives us. It gives life to us. Now, the important thing about it is, one of the important, like, as you look at the uh, applications of this, the very last verse is telling us what to do with this. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So he's telling us we have to meditate and think on this. It's not enough to read it, put it down, and just leave it behind you. It's to read it and take it into you. So all of us are constantly having an internal conversation with ourselves. But we'd say that we're talking to ourselves. But the Bible would say that's really along the lines of what meditation is. I'm talking to myself about the Lord. And he's entering into this with me. So to, to meditate means that we are, we're thinking about God's word and bringing clarity to it for ourselves. And then we're seeking to integrate it into our old way of thinking to replace ideas that aren't true that the word of God challenges to push those things away and say, no, this is what God says life is about. And then to begin to pray about it. Now, some of you struggle with the elements of prayer. Like, I don't know how to pray. Let me give you four elements of prayer, right? Very simple. Wow, thanks, help, and sorry, right? So wow are hymns of praise. Thanks are hymns of gratitude or words of gratitude to God for what he's done. Uh, help are words that we typically call supplication, asking God for help in your life when you know you need it. And then the fourth is sorry. That's confession. We do that on Sunday morning here. So those are elements of prayer that we can bring before God and have a conversation. But he's saying we have to, um, we have to meditate and bring this in. Otherwise, we don't benefit from it. You may have the initial coming to Christ by faith if you're a Christian, but you can't leave it there. You have to, you have to do the hard work of bringing the truths of the gospel into your life after that by faith. So Connor is having shoulder surgery in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that one. And uh, I had a conversation with my brother uh, this past week. He, he called. We'd been at the beach together for a little bit. And I said, hey, you had this, almost the same surgery that, that Connor had, right? And he said, yeah. He fell out of a tree stand. He's a hunter and fell out of a tree stand and just destroyed his shoulder. So he had to have all kinds of surgery done on it. And uh, so we're talking about that. I said, do you still have any pain from it? He said, nope. I said, do you have full mobility? He said, yep. I said, are you back to full strength? He said, yep. And I said, and, and then he volunteered. He said, do the rehab. Have Connor do the therapy. Because if you don't do it, you don't get it back. And so he said, I did it religiously. I went all three times a week. I did it at home. Uh, his his uh his wife is like a physical therapist, and she said, whatever they tell you do and whatever they tell you don't do, don't do that. And so he was telling me about some friends of his who had the exact same surgery years ago, and they say, I wish I'd never had the surgery because my arm is worse now than before I had the surgery. And his next question was, did you, uh, did you do the therapy? No, it was too expensive and was way too time-consuming. And he, being who he is, he said, well, there's your problem right there, Right? And this is a little bit like what he's saying with, with, with uh, meditation here, is we bring it in, we tell ourselves the truth about God, we pray about how to implement it in our lives, and then we say, I trust you, and we step out in faith. Now, what this does not mean, this does not mean that if you, you know, bring it into your life and you do what you think God's telling you to do, it's going to go exactly the way that you want. It doesn't always mean that, right? Sometimes it still goes south. So imagine two scenarios in your head. Scenario one. Scenario one is uh, 
you just act according to your gut. There's a little bit of a conflict between you and another person, and you just follow your gut. And your gut is to blow up and get angry, give that person a piece of your mind, and it doesn't go well. It goes south, right? Um, so you learn, okay, maybe I need to do something else. Right? So imagine this. You look at what the scripture says about Jesus and love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He's not, boast, he's not self-seeking. He's not rude. Okay, that's what the Bible says about Jesus. I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. I'm going to follow this. And then somebody does something that sets you off. And you don't respond according to your gut, but you've meditated on God's word so much that what comes out of you is a kindness. And what comes out of you is a gentleness. And what comes out of you is a, a real affection for this person. But this person's still a jerk. And that still goes south. And you did everything you thought you were supposed to be doing there. Now, how does God's word help you in that? Well, you're able to walk away and say, thank you, Jesus, that you walked with me in the midst of that. That when you, the people who hated you and cast slurs upon you, you didn't retaliate. And you, by your spirit, gave me the ability to do the same thing in this situation. Thank you for your presence. I felt your presence in that conversation. Even though it didn't go the way that I wish it would have gone, you were with me. Thank you. So we come back into this. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Bible's clear. We meet with God through his word. His spirit's there with us. And when we open up and read and ask him to come and teach us, he does do this. And so for some of us, we have this deep sense of communion. For others, we struggle with that. And for some of us, we may be on that, that plane of trying to figure out, is this even real? Is all of this real? If I were to pick up my Bible and read it, would God meet with me? Is, is, is God really, has God really revealed himself in the scripture? And so when he's telling us here to meditate, he's not just telling us to think about it. He's actually telling us also to think about the things that would hinder us. Because we all come with a grid to the Bible. Some of us are looking for rules and laws. Some of us are looking for our politics. But he's saying, look for the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Don't look for the things you've been taught to look for. Look for him because that's what he's telling us to look for. And there you begin to find transformation. Found a, uh, came across a story on YouTube. Young man who was a, a Mormon missionary from Salt Lake City to Orlando, just a, an hour away from us. This is probably about 10 years ago. And so he's here in, in our part of the country. And he's decided he is going to convert the masses of Orlando. And he gets it in his mind that he's going to take the bull by the horns and he's going to go to this Baptist church and he's going to convert the entire church to Mormonism. Uh, it didn't happen. And uh, so he met the pastor and is trying to convince the pastor of Mormon doctrine and Mormon ceremonies. And they have, again, that's not a denomination. It's a different understanding of God and of the Bible altogether. And so he's dealing with this pastor and he's getting angrier and angrier at the pastor because the pastor keeps bringing out the Bible. He's kind of like, I didn't expect this guy to know the Bible like this. And he's showing me errors in the Book of Mormon and my understanding of things. So he's angry about this. And so he's going to leave. And the pastor said, let me stop and challenge you for just a second to do something. He said, let me, let me challenge you to read the Bible as a child. 
don't read the Bible as a Mormon missionary. Don't read the Bible with, a, with the Book of Mormon kind of like, you know, shaping how you read the Bible. Go read the Bible as someone who's a child coming to a father. So this young man started to read the New Testament. And this is what he said, he realized. He said, my God, the Mormon is understanding, my God only loved me as far as I proved myself to him. Right? I have to do this and then God will love me. But in the scriptures, he encountered a God who loved him apart from anything he did. And then a God who transforms him so that he begins to live for him. He recognized that Jesus died to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we could never pay. And he was converted and came to faith in Christ. So the whole time he's on his Mormon mission down in Orlando, he's reading the New Testament and growing in his faith and beginning to get to know Christians. Then he goes back to Salt Lake City where his mother is a professor at BYU. And pretty much his entire family has come to faith in Jesus. Right? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The Bible makes God known to us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to accept what's being said. And in the word, in creation, and through the power of the Spirit in Jesus Christ, we come face to face with the God who loves us. And all the promises, all the blessings, uh, all the work that Jesus has done on the cross become ours. Let me pray for us. We are grateful that you've given us your word. Uh, we live in a cancel culture, and you could have canceled us a long time ago, but you continue to pursue. You sent your son, you sent your spirit to bring us to you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you have bridged the gap between heaven and earth, and that you, Lord Jesus, came to rescue and redeem a people for yourself, and you call us your own. You've given us your spirit and your word, we pray that you would help us to live by faith in you every day, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.